You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord, in your mercies, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to your word, uh, to the wonders of this uh, first book of the Bible. I pray that you'll teach us from it even today. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We started this class two weeks ago, um, and I, a lot of you weren't in here. Uh, so, And it really wasn't very good, to be honest with you. I mean, someone... I, I, I walked away from that class and I left the recorder in my pocket and had it at home. I forgot. And I really debated. I'm like, you know what? I, I can give an honest self-assessment. That was a C minus at best. Um, but anyway, so you're here now. All right. Uh, and, uh, and we're working through Genesis. I will probably, um, oh no, yeah, the, like the door to the ark is closed there. Um, we, we, I don't know where we're going to get. This is a three-week series. My hunch is I might extend this series into into the season of Advent. Um, we'll take a little hiatus. So just you know, keep your ears and eyes your eyes open. But putting the car just a little bit in reverse um, from our conversation last time, we thought a little bit about the two creation accounts of the book of Genesis. When you think about Genesis chapter one. Verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. I pointed out to you that, that kind of interesting phenomenon that within the Hebrew text, which is always a little bit of a will to power move from teachers, you know, but, um, and in the Hebrew text, seven words are, are what are given within that first verse. Um, Bereshit bara Elohim veha'aretz, wait, veha'shamayim veha'aretz, I think that's how, something like that. Um, and it's, it's seven words, which of course speaks to the, the, um, the completion and the perfection of God's creative activity. Um, this is the thing that if you kind of remember the theme of what we talked about last time, um, what we wanted to sort of emphasize with the fact that when you get out of the book of Genesis, it starts the canon um, it is of complete interest that the whole of the Christian Bible, Old and New Testament, begin with creation and end with creation. So if you sort of flip to the beginning of the Bible, there we are with God creating um, and speaking a world into existence. When we turn to the end of the Bible, um, we see God reconstituting and reorienting and recreating His creation again. Um, and so we, 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 we pressed that because what we wanted to emphasize um, a couple of weeks ago was the doctrine of creation is a doctrine that has its own integrity. That was the theme of our, whether that came across clearly, that was the theme of the lesson two weeks ago. The doctrine of creation has its own integrity within, within our sort of theological worldview. Why do I say that? I say that because there was a tendency within 20th century theology to subsume the doctrine of creation to the doctrine of redemption. In other words, the created world around us is a kind of occasion um, for what God would do to redeem humanity, but it had a kind of secondary status because the world was here to provide the redemptive um, dramatic stage by which God would redeem humanity to himself. That is true. Don't, don't hear that claim attenuated in any way. That is a true claim. 
uh, creation, if I can borrow from Karl Barth, is the external basis of the covenant that God has made with humanity. Um, so it's the means by which God does that. But it tended to, at least in 20th century theology, instrumentalize creation. Um, to render it as that which did not have its own integrity as a doctrine. And, and the, the point that we were trying to make is, the fact that the Bible comes to us in the form in which it comes to us, where you have Genesis 1 right out of the gate, um, lets us know that God was creator, um, in some measure, I guess we could say, before God was redeemer. Um, he created the world. And he cares about his world. Uh, we have some chairs. Um, Who would have thought Genesis would have been so interesting? Uh, um, the, you're okay? You want to pop up there in those seats back there? It's fine. Um, okay, so uh, Genesis, the, the, the creation has its own integrity. And that also speaks, I think, to the importance of what God is doing with this world and our care and concern for this world um, as it relates to the future. You know, we talked last week about the, or whenever we did this, the importance of, of the material world, um, to God's, uh, to God's being. Now, let's get a few things straight. Number one, and, and this is, this is crucial. God did not need to create the world. I think that needs to be said very clearly. If there, if there is a claim in Christian theology that has to hold, and it's one that as I get older, I become more and more committed to, uh, with, with a little bit of probably venom behind it, in the sense that um, there is a distinction that has to be maintained between the Creator and the creation. Um, there is nothing external to the being of God that required Him or necessitated Him to create. He did not have to do that. In other words, and this is really where the sort of rubber meets the road in our view of God, there was nothing lacking in God's being eternally. As a communion of triune love, there was nothing lacking in God that creation would fill in the gap that God needed to make Himself fuller in His being. Does that make any sense? Um, God was complete and full. This is probably not the right term to predicate on God, but I'll use it. Satisfied with Himself in His own eternal sharing of glory and love in a mutual triune communion. He didn't need anything outside. There, there's some old songs that used to talk about God being lonely. And so God was lonely and therefore He created man because He wanted somebody to, to interact with in relationship. God was never lonely. There was never lack in God's being at all. Um, so then we... And these are the kind of philosophical questions that can get you into trouble real fast. But we raise the question, then why? I mean, why would God do this? Why would He create... Why would he enter into relationships with, with people like you and me? I mean, we, we get a sense of the cosmic scope of our world. You know, I've got a little um, uh, bathroom book that I bought. Is that indelicate? I shouldn't say that. Um, uh, you, you have these, I know. Um, and uh, it, it's, it's this book by Neil deGrasse Tyson called Astro... Have you seen this? Astrophysics for People in a Hurry. Uh, it's like, that's my kind of book, right? Um, and uh, and it's fa I haven't read all of it, but it's fascinating. He's describing how our material world came to being from a from a from the standpoint of sort of astrophysics. And 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 what does he say? He's, I mean, he's talking about all that had to happen 
Um, and and on, the, on the most microscopic level of our material world for, for matter to have occurred. And he gives this long narrative. It's a very moving narrative, actually, of all of this. And then like on page 7 or 8, he says, and that's one nanosecond of time. I mean, all that I've just described happened within not even a full second of time for all the events to come together. It's, it's remarkable. Um, there's a, a book by a fellow named uh, Frank Wilczek, who I believe teaches physics up at, um, up at MIT. And, and Wilczek basically says, as a physicist, I, I don't know where I stand on the whole God and Christianity thing. He's very honest about that. But he says, if there is a God... Um, and there is a creator, then when I look at the material world on its most basic elemental level, then that God must be an artist because it's beautiful. I mean, when you look broad, it's gorgeous. When you look very close at the microscopic level, it's beautiful. Why did God do this? He didn't have to do it. He did it. And this is, I think, again, Christian theology 101, but it's it's a gospel word. He did it out of the beneficence and overflow of his own love for his triune self. So when you think about the world being, Jürgen Moltmann had a phrase that he would sort of bandy about on this. God had to create space. Uh, I mean, he was, he is everything, right? So he creates space and time for the world to be. And then God gives himself to that space and time to enter into a relationship with his created world. It's, it's remarkable. God loves his world. He looked at it, we saw in Genesis chapter 1. And at the end of the first day, he said, what? That's good. And then he looked at the end of the second day, that's good. Moving, if you remember, toward the apex of creation, which of course we affirm um, humanity um, being made in God's image as the apex of God's creative activity. But the apex of God's created week is the seventh day, where God ceases from his labors. The Bible uses the term rest um, I'd be careful about that. Um, you know, God, God, God wasn't exhausted at the end of six days, you know, stretching out to say, I really need my Sunday afternoon nap. I mean, that's not, not what God was saying. I mean, what, what is God doing? He's ceasing from his creative activity. But what's he doing now? Well, now, from the standpoint of the seventh day, which is particular to God's existence, God lives and moves within the frame of his seventh day being. And what does God do from the seventh day of his existence? He governs providentially his created world, moving it toward its own end, uh, which is a real remarkable uh, achievement of faith to believe that's true. Um, And that's Article 1 of all of our confessions of faith and our creeds. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. He's sustaining things, his world from the seventh day, and he's overseeing his redemptive achievements from the seventh day, eventually receiving us into that seventh day of his existence. Welcome to the new heavens and the new earth. So what do you see when you look at the beginning of the Bible and the end of the Bible? I'm going to use sort of big theology words here, but it's protology and eschatology are fitted to one another. And God gives us a kind of insight into the beginning of the Bible of what the end is actually going to look like. And what does the end look like? It's, uh, it's like the old, the old country song, look how far we've had to come to get back where we started from. <laughs> right? Uh, this, is, this is the achievement. It's not... Um, anti-material. Now, I want to talk about that for a second, um, because I do think that there are pastoral implications, uh, Christian 
living implications, if I can use that terminology, with what we see in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Um, God, who is spirit, not bound by the material world, is not anti-matter or material. That's important because I think there is still, and I, I can go back, some of you, this will mean nothing. You, you've come from a world that's theologically sophisticated. I, I kind of grew up in a world that understood physicality, um, createdness, matter, um, to be bad. I, I kind of, I think I grew up in a dualistic world, a world that pitted the spirit over against the material world. Um, you, you all know this, or at least remember this, the earliest of challenges to Christian faith, namely those gifts to the church named the heretics, um, who forced the church to think about what they believed. Um, the earliest heretical voices were those voices that played spirit over against matter. Gnosticism is a form of that, right? Um, so, so, for example, the first bad guy in the life of the church is a guy that I have a, a, a special hatred for. I can't stand um, is, a, is a guy named Marcion. You know, made his memory rot. That wasn't very lovely, but that's how the early church fathers talked, by the way. Church, the church fathers knew how to do an argument. You know, here, here's the title of one of Tertullian's books, Against Marcion. That's it. I was like, Noah. Anyway, uh, so what's, what's Marcion's view? Marcion's philosophical view of God is God and matter cannot happily coexist. The material world is sullied um, by evil. And because the material world is sullied by evil, God cannot be wrapped up in that material world. So what was one of the outcomes of that philosophical, philosophical view of Marcion? One of the outcomes was, I've read the Old Testament, guess what? God's all messed up within the material world of ancient Israel. Therefore, that cannot be the Christian God. Some semi-God, some demiurge God, but it cannot be the Christian God. So he begins to lobotomize the Bible. Whack! There goes the Old Testament. Whack, there goes all of Paul. Uh, whack, there goes... And, oh no, actually, he left Paul. That, that was, um, that was, he didn't have his Old Testament Geiger meter out very well because you can't read Paul without the Old Testament either. Point being, anything that smelt Old Testamenty for Marcion um, had to have been excised and moved out because it was just, it's just too material. What do we learn from Genesis 1 and the end of the book of Revelation? God loves His world. He's committed to it. He's redeeming it. That will help you, I think, make sense of some of these wild passages. Um, when you come, for example, to Romans 8, and there the Apostle Paul says that all creation is groaning for the consummation of God's kingdom. I mean, the rocks and the trees are groaning. Uh, the rivers and the oceans are groaning. What? For this world to be made what it's meant to be, absent the pernicious presence of sin. It'll help you understand in Colossians 1 why the, the doctrine of the atonement, which we tend to think of in very personalized ways, and rightly so, but that the doctrine of the atonement has the whole cosmic order in view. Stars and galaxies and mountains and, uh, and valleys and, and deserts, all of them are under the purview of what God was doing in Jesus at the cross to make, if I can borrow from Isaiah, crooked valleys straight and rough places smooth again. Um, there's a little line in the Gospel of Mark that 
and again, I don't, I don't know if I'd go to the guillotine over this reading because it's so small of a little claim, uh, there in the, in the temptation narrative of Jesus. It's in no other gospel but Mark. Um, and it's a, it's a, it's a weird phrase. And it, it says this, and Jesus was out in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. And here's the phrase, and he was with the wild animals. And then it moves on. Da, da, da. None of the other gospels have that. Now, Richard Balkum, uh, who was a professor of mine in my back in the day, Richard Balkum wrote a very interesting piece where he suggested, based on the creation promises of the Old Testament, think Isaiah chapter 11, uh, think Genesis 1 through 3, um, that, that God's creation promises are being fulfilled and adumbrated in what Jesus does in the wilderness. He's with the wild animals and he's at peace with them there. He's indicating for us already in his own wilderness wanderings with the wild animals that there is a day coming and he is the agent by which this will be achieved. There is a day coming when all, when all will be made right and, and, uh, and we will um, play with the wild animals. You know, uh, Zach mentioned this this morning, so right. Um, you know, uh, daylight savings time is the devil for parents of three-year-olds. I happen to be one of those, right? So here comes Marion at 5.30 this morning, you know, da, 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 da. And, and I'm like, all right, come on. So, you know, I take her downstairs and brew some coffee and pull out my notes for Sunday school and flip on the National Geographic channel. And it's on um, jaguars in Brazil. And we're watching this. Jaguars in Brazil. Uh, it's fascinating. And uh, and I'm, I'm watching this and I'm thinking, you know, those cute little jaguar babies, um, given the opportunity and time, uh, they will eat you. All right. That's how the, that's how this thing rolls. Um, and, and you've heard about these horrible stories about these, you know, grizzly bear men who go out and think that they're one with the grizzly bears and they find their bones. You know, after time. I mean, it's, um, it's, it's not, we're not in the wilderness with Jesus yet with the wild animals. Um, but the day is, and he's intimated that in his own life, the day is coming when we will be. So I don't, again, I, I want to talk about this for a second, then we'll move on, but I don't know what your hopes are for heaven. Um, and interestingly enough, the Bible doesn't give us a lot on this, except for the whole of the doctrine of creation that runs from the beginning to the end. Um, so I don't know what your views is, views are of the new heavens and the new earth, but I want to. I think I can promise you, on the basis of God's word, that it will be physical and material, dimensional. Um, we will enjoy the beauty and the good. I mean, think how good our enjoyment of the created order can be right now. I mean, my wife and I were out on on. Um, this weekend, debating about, a, are we going to plant a Japanese maple tree right here? I guess this is the time of year you plant trees. So we have an area that we cleared out, like Japanese maple tree right there. And we, so we went to the botanical gardens to look at the, the trees, and they're, they're gorgeous. You know, I, I, you drive, the maple trees are kind of at their, I think, at their peak right now. You drive around this world that we live in. My, my son had a baseball tournament up in Scottsboro in the summer. I forgot about Lake Gunnersville. You know, that's in Alabama. You know, and you're and you're driving through that in the middle of the state, and you go, I can't. I mean, this is what an hour from our house. This is beautiful. It's breathtaking. Think about how wonderful our experiences are of the created order now. How life giving it can be now in our world. And yet, you take your relational dynamics into the woods as a family when you go hiking. 
don't you? Right? I mean, I've told I've told many people, you want to really get a good premarital counseling moment? Go canoeing down a fast-moving river. <laughs> Stick a young couple in a beautiful, fast-moving river. Our first big marital fight was in a canoe. I'm not kidding. I was like, what are you doing? Obey me. Follow me. She's like, shut up. You know, what are you doing? It was horrible. It was horrible. Right? Um, my brother-in-law is here. He remembers that trip, actually. Um, all to say, we enjoy our created world, but we also know the burden of our of the created world, the fear of the created world. Think about what Zach preached about this morning. He's so right. I mean, the sea god, uh, Poseidon and Neptune, I mean, the, 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 the rivers and the waters, pernicious. Um, and yet the day is coming when that created world will be absent. All those pernicious elements. Um, and again, I don't know if you, if your goal has been to escape this body, to be in a kind of spiritual existence with God. Um, you know, I don't want to disappoint. I hope this isn't disappointing. I hope this is life-giving in the sense that it's not an absent of bodily experience in the new heavens and the earth, new earth. It's bodily experience at its perfected form. Absent sin, absent the tyranny of sin on our bodies. Um, and we could go on and on about that. So if you like fly fishing and golf and doggies and cat, I mean, I just think that's the kind of picture more so that we expect, I think, in the new heavens uh, and the new earth. Well, let me stop for a question for a second before I move on, because I know our time's somewhat limited. You want to press into that? You want to ask any questions about that? About creation, independent integrity of that doctrine, the way in which the Bible sort of frames this beginning and the end? Any... Nope. Bueller? Bueller? Nope. Okay. Uh, then let's go to Genesis chapter 3. All right. Um, so Genesis chapter 3 is where the wheels come off the car. All right. Lots of debates within the scholarly literature as to as whether or not the term fall best describes Genesis chapter 3. I'm not going to sort of wade into that. Um, one thing that is interesting, I think, about Genesis chapter 3 is the fact that it's absent in so much of the rest of the Old Testament. That is of interest, I think. In other words, there's not a lot of appeal uh, through the prophetic literature or through the wilderness wanderings or the Mosaic legislation. There's not a lot of appeal to what happened narratively with Adam and Eve and the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. That, that, that is of interest. Um, one of my, my hero scholars is a man named Brevard Childs. He says that despite that fact, um, this needs to be retained as a central narrative within the Old Testament in its entirety. Uh, he says the anthropological, meaning our understanding of humanity, and our view of the world, our cosmology, um, embody the effects of disobedience and that that cannot be downplayed. So what do you have here in Genesis chapter 3? This functions as an, the technical term is an etiology. What it gives is a kind of cause and effect about the narratives that you're, you will begin to read in the patriarchal narratives beginning with Abraham all the way to Joseph. And it's messy. I mean, for all of God's promises that he's making there to Abraham and the goodness of what he will do to the world through Abraham's offspring, you read those narratives and you realize from beginning to end, we're in Messyville. I mean, we're, we're still in Sin City. Um, and we're dealing with the pernicious presence of sin throughout that. Genesis chapter 3 sets us up for what's coming, up, coming uh, through the rest of the, um, of, the, uh, of the narratives. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. 
uh, classic debated text. Can I read it to you? I will put enmity uh, between you and the woman. Who's he speaking to here? The serpent. Um, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise uh, his heel. Um, this is the so-called uh, proto-euangelion. That? That's, that's for cocktail talk later tonight. I need to drop that. Um, what does that mean? For, first announcement of the gospel in the Bible. That's, that's what proto-euangelion means. And there's been some pretty significant disagreement over this text in the history of interpretation. Now, this is one of those places where Luther and Calvin uh, will part company, right? Um, Calvin says, Genesis 3.15 is not a proto-euangelion. According to the intention of this text, this is not about um, a promise about the offspring of Eve, who eventually would be Jesus, who would defeat Satan at the cross. Uh, Calvin says, that's not what this text is about. Luther, well, you can guess, right? Luther is, of course, this is an announcement of the gospel. I actually do tend to side... Uh, with Luther on this one. Um, the triumph of the woman's seed here is a promise about a return to the Edenic state, to the state of Eden, before the serpent could rot his damage or render his damage. Woman from man and seed from the woman. For what purpose? For the restoration of the old creation. Again, this is that importance and integrity of creation coming through. What's happening in Genesis 3.15? It's the promise of the restoration of the fallen created order. The pressing question here in Genesis chapter 3 is, who is going to have dominion? Will the serpent have dominion? Or will humanity have the dominion? And how will this be achieved? So the narrative moves, I believe, in Genesis 3.15 toward promise and the identity of God the Creator as now God the Redeemer. How is God going to redeem this fallen world, this world that He created and deemed it good until sin came in and rendered its long-term effects on the entirety of the created order? Um, I mean, this, this is, I think Genesis chapter 3 needs something like C.S. Lewis for us, to help us. Um, we, we need that kind of Mytho, again, I think this is rooted and grounded in reality. Okay. But I think we need kind of mythic language. I mean, how would, how would someone like Lewis or Tolkien or these great fantasy writers describe what's happening in Genesis 3 uh, with the fall? I think what you'd see is something like the whole world going off axis. I mean, everything is off kilter now. Relationships have broken down. Everything's off. Um, the created order is off. Uh, the, the created order is now eating itself. Uh, there's a food chain that's going on. Um, lots of debates about whether or not that was the case beforehand, but it's really bad now. Um, and um, sin has infected the totality of the human person. This is what Charles is talking about with that anthropological reality, our understanding of what it means to be human. This is not popular today. This is completely countercultural, especially, again, I hope this isn't offensive, but especially in the kind of therapeutic world and highly sensitive world that we live in now. Think about sort of American public discourse. Um, it is not popular, I don't think, to talk about humanity from top to bottom being infected and affected by sin. Um, 
because we, we're achievers, we're kind of self-sufficient, we want, we want to be able to sort of achieve our, our greatest human potential. And the problem is our greatest human potential is, um, is sullied and limited by the reality of our human nature. And we cannot escape that. Um, to put it to you in these terms, sin has had its effect on the totality of what it means for you to be a human. So your, um, your thinking mechanism, your intellectual life, your rationality life, that's been infected by sin. Uh, your emotional and affective life, that's been infected and affected by sin. And here's the part that's even controversial among Christians. I, I, I struggle to understand completely why, but here's the part that's still controversial among Christians. Um, our, our, um, our choosers, our willers, our, the deciding volitional aspects of our being have also been infected and affected by sin. So does humanity, I mean, I'll put it to you this way in a very simple terminology. Does humanity have free will? Oh boy, I can't believe I'm waiting into this. Um, can, does humanity have free will? Most definitely it does. But our wills are constrained by our nature. And we cannot, left to ourselves, choose the ultimate good. We cannot do that. Because again, sin has had its infectious play on the t- entirety of our being. That's why Genesis 3 is so important. Genesis 3 provides you the kind of glasses, the cosmic glasses, to put on to then read the rest of the Bible and understand what's the problem. This was, this was very hot language in the 90s and still probably now um, with regard to Pauline studies. Uh, the, the, the language of plight and solution. What's humanity's plight and what's the solution that's needed? And a lot of Pauline scholars in the 90s, I think this stuff has kind of had its day, a lot of Pauline scholars in the 90s says, Paul actually works from solution to plight. He's got the answer to the problem and works backwards to figure out what, what the actual problem is. I don't think that's true. What's the plight that we're shown in Genesis chapter 3 that no human being can escape because we cannot escape our bodies? The plight is sin and sin's tyrannical presence on the entirety of our being from top to bottom. The way we think, what the the Reformers call the noetic effects of sin, how we think, how we feel, and how we choose. All of that has been infected by sin. And Genesis 3 is the place where that comes uh, comes home um, in, in narratival form. The world got knocked off a kilter there in Genesis chapter 3. And guess what sin does um, in the rest of the uh, primeval history? Sin breeds more sin. Look at verse 7 of Genesis chapter 4. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's desire. This this is scary. This is a scary verse. It's what's the antecedent of the it's there? Sin. Which by the way, that's not that's not just um playful um imagery in the Bible. I do believe that sin is actually given a kind of personality within the scriptures. We do sins, we do bad things, but there's also that capital S sin thing. Um a kind of alien 
um, a hostile force that's got a personal agency in our world. We see it in our children. <laughs> and they see it in their and they see it in our their daddy. That's what I was gonna say, yeah. So here it is, it's personal. Sin's desire is for you, but you must rule over it. How does Cain do with that whole ruling over it? Not very well. Sin is crouching at the door in Genesis chapter 4, and we see in the burgeoning narrative of the primeval history the ongoing effects of sin and the fall. And here's the first genealogy that we have in Genesis chapter 4. The first genealogy, verses 17 through 24, um, is really an anti-genealogy. Um, if, let's see here, verse 23, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Zalamach, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. Um, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Gerhard von Rod, by the way, thinks that when Jesus says 70 times seven to Peter, how many times should we forgive? That there's a kind of hidden referent here back to the story of Lamech. I think he might be right on that. But what's the point? By the end of... Think about this. You have the murder, the first murder in the beginning of chapter 4 of Genesis. So we're just out of chapter 3, the fall. Then you've got a murder, a, a fatricide between brothers. And by the end of Genesis chapter 4, you have a figure who's bragging about his murder. Can you see that the sort of tyrannical building, snowballing effect of sin within Genesis chapter 4. But then you go to Genesis chapter 5, and now we actually see a gene genealogy that's laced with promise. And that's the movement that you have. Sin and promise, sin and promise. Genesis chapter 5 is a genealogy with promise seed over against the anti-genealogy of the preceding chapter. Um, Seth is a surrogate uh, for Abel, who's dead now. And it's from the line of Seth that we begin to see the promise of descendants who eventually come. I don't have my clock on me. What time? Oh, it's time. Well, we got to Genesis chapter 4. That's a lot of promise in that. Hope. Okay. Um, we'll come back next week and, and move uh, from Genesis chapter 4, believe it or not, all the way through the Abrahamic covenant. So I, I, I give you half my word on that. Okay? Um, let's pray. Lord, bless my friends as they depart here. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, for leaving us with your word that, that really gives us the right um, glasses to wear to understand the dynamics of the world in which we live um, and the bodies that we inhabit. Uh, we, are, we are sinners. Um, our world is infected by it as well. We, we, we flip on the news. We read the paper. We watch just our own narratival dynamics. And we know, Lord, that we can't escape it. And you've entered into this world, the world that you love and that you created, for the sake of making all things new. Now give us that big, grand view of the gospel. And thank you for letting our small stories be a part of that grand one. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.